0: This is probably the toughest challenge I had. I was finishing the book, the the last two chapters, while in a psych ward. Wow. So in, that, in that psych ward, and not, nobody knows this story. I never tell this story. Um, I couldn't write. My hands would shake so violently I couldn't write. So I dictated the book to a nurse who was willing during the art therapy sessions to help me.
1: Welcome to Authors of Impact. I'm your host, Jazz Rawlinson, best-selling author, book coach, and all-round lover of impactful stories. Join with me as we go behind the memoir with some of the world's most influential authors, revealing the secrets and strategies that have helped each writer go from big idea to author of impact. I'll also share with you the techniques and tips that I use as a book coach and author that can help you better navigate the writing and publishing process for yourself. If you're ready to become an author of Impact, this is the place for you. Hey there, fellow changemaker. Welcome back to Authors of Impact. Just a heads up for today's episode that we will be discussing topics and conversations such as suicide and suicide attempts, but most importantly, healing, hope and recovery from trauma. If this conversation is a bit too raw or real for you at this moment, feel free to come back at a later stage or to skip it completely. I hope that you enjoy this episode and that you're as inspired as I am by today's guest. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to this newest episode. I have a very special guest here today that I'm so excited is joining all the way from the United States, a good friend and fellow mental health advocate of mine, Kevin Hines. I could, you know, say so many amazing things about Kevin, but I might allow him to share a little bit about himself in a moment. But if you're new to Kevin, he's a suicide prevention speaker, storyteller, uh, award-winning documentary filmmaker and author, which is why I have him here today to share all about his writing journey and his book. Um, But first of all, thank you so much for joining, Kevin, and welcome. And I'm so glad, so happy to catch up and see you.
0: Thank you, Jazz. It's so nice to see you. It's always nice to see you. And thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, Yeah, I'm I'm an author, a filmmaker, and an advocate. And uh, I love the work I do and I love trying to help other people.
1: It's beautiful. And you have a really special story, um, which I'd love to ask you to just share just briefly. But, you know, on your website, when you share about who you are and what you do, and you share that you are a suicide survivor and as many people... Would know, um, you know, you su- you're one of very few people to ever survive a fall from the Golden Gate Bridge and to, you know, still have an enabled body after that as well. But there was something really miraculous that happened on the day that led to you actually surviving. And I was wondering if we could start there, and you could share a bit about about that moment and what it was that, who it was that's responsible for you being here today.
0: Absolutely. Uh, well, first of all, uh, it was it was a miracle that I, I got to survive. And in the water, as I failed to stay afloat, something began to circle beneath me. And I always say in my talks that it was something very large, very slimy and very much alive. And I thought it was a shark. I thought at any moment, the shark was going to devour me whole and that would be it. But it turned out as I was on a television program a year later promoting a suicide prevention campaign, I I guess I had said on the show, I thought there was a shark beneath me in the water. Well, when the show went viral online, people saw it from all over the world. And one man's letter to ABC news that they sent to me stuck out above all the rest. His name was Morgan McWard. And he said in his letter, Dear Kevin, I'm so very glad you're alive. I was standing less than two feet away from you when you jumped. Until this day, watching this show, no one would tell me whether he lived or died. It's haunted me until now. By the way, there was no shark, like you mentioned, and you thought there was on the show. There was, in fact, a sea lion. And the people above looking down believed it to be keeping your body afloat until the Coast Guard boat arrived behind you. That's the miracle that saved my life from me jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge.
1: Wow. And had
0: that, had that creature not kept me afloat until the Coast Guard boat arrived, I would not be here talking to you
1: today. It still gives me goosebumps whenever I hear that story. I mean, it's it's so incredible, and I love that you've brought that into a lot of your branding as well over the past few years. You know, see the sea lion on um, shirts or different kinds of branding that you've got, and I I just think that's so beautiful because most a lot of us know about the healing power of animals and how important animals are for our uh, mental health and our healing journey, but we we don't often think about wild undomesticated animals and how the role that they can play in our lives in such an incredible way and I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who you know might see a sea lion and not think too much of them or might think they're these scary um scary creatures but I just think that's such a yeah I mean what can you even say like such an amazing moment and I'm so glad that sea lion was there and (laughs) wanted to help you out on that day It's, it's um
0: Amazing. Sorry, you know, it is is amazing, but equally as amazing is what happened a year later to the date of my attempt. I went out to the bridge with my dad to drop a flower over where I I jumped. I remember the exact light rail where I did it. And he said, my dad said, show me where. He wanted me to find closure. He wanted us to find closure from what I did. And I dropped this flower over the rail and it wafted down very slowly and hit the water. Made the tiniest of ripple effects, hence the name of our film, Suicide, the Ripple Effect, and two feet to the right popped up a sea line. And it was arguably the most beautiful moment I've ever shared with my father next to him being the best man at my wedding.
1: Wow. Wow. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I love those, you know, those moments uh, of synchronicity where things happen like that and you just go, "This, there is no coincidence to this. There has to be is some some bigger uh, reason or some beautiful kind of, yeah, synchronicity that's happened uh, in that moment. And I just think what a powerful moment of healing, like, for your dad as well and, like, a little moment of joy between you two.
0: Yeah. Um, Very special.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So obviously you have come a long way since then because how – what year was it of your attempt and survival?
0: It was the year 2000 when I attempted. Um, two, two, 2000, I survived, and so it's been, you know, over 21 years since my attempt. Um, but the one thing people don't usually know about me—I mean, I talk about it sometimes, but not—it's not widely known—is that I, I live with chronic thoughts of suicide. They—they they, play me, um, but I always say they'll never—they'll never take me. I'll never die by my hands because today. And every day since my attempt that I become suicidal, I say to anyone willing to hear me four simple but very effective words. I need help now. And when I say those words, it's not, it's not always the first, second, or third purple that person that gets my back because not everyone is equipped to handle that kind of pain. But someone in those, in, in the time, in the probability in which I ask that, or make that statement, I need help now, someone has always been willing to empathize with my pain. And that's how I live my life. I I, I don't I, I don't hold my pain in anymore. I tell the truth about it to anyone willing to listen. Uh, usually, it's my wife, Margaret. Uh, but but if it's not my wife, it's my father or my family or my friends. And if it's not my family or friends, and I'm and I'm not next to any of those people, I will say it to the first person next to me, hoping that they will have a kind reaction.
1: Mm. I'm really glad you brought that up as well, because a lot of people in the mental health space there can be this, um, there can be this thought that a lot of people have that if somebody's a mental health speaker or advocate, you know, they must know the secret. They must have the secret source recipe for being a-okay now, you know, like they must be all good now, you know, oh, you survived your suicide attempt. But, you know, look at Kevin, he travels, he tours the world speaking and sharing his story. So he must be absolutely okay now. Um, And I think it's, you know that's one thing I always appreciate about you and your story um, and your advocacy is that openness and vulnerability to say that you still you still struggle with suicidal thoughts regularly, but it's just that you refuse to allow them to take over and uh, you you refuse to allow your behaviors or your actions to um, yeah manifest negatively from there. Um, and we've talked a lot in the past as well, you and I, about the role that, you know, Margie, your beautiful wife, plays in your healing as well. I know we did an interview a couple of years ago on the importance of caregivers. Um, can you just share a little bit about, you know, some of the, the ways that Margie cares for herself as well? Because a lot of people will probably go, oh, Kevin, what do you do to look after yourself? But people often don't think uh, to ask the caregivers about in our lives about how they care for themselves as well. So I was wondering if you could just share a couple of things that Margie does to refill her cup so that she can be there and can be that support person for you.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, Margaret is, Margaret is the most wonderful and strongest woman I know. She's the most dedicated to her loved ones that, that, that I've ever come across. That's her, her family, her friends, uh, Everybody in between, and she the, the best thing about her in how she takes care of me is that she takes care of herself first or she can't take care of me she 's always making sure that she's safe and well so that she can make sure i 'm okay and I think that's the biggest uh, strength she has is that she doesn't uh, let anything get in front of her self care um and that, that, I think, is really impressive to me. I don't see that often with couples. I see, every, I see folks trying to bolster up their loved one when they're having a hard time themselves. When, in fact, with Margaret, um, she's really got this knack for uh, making sure she's on a level playing field before tending to me, which I think is great. I love that. Uh, and and, and, and when, when she does tend to me and take care of me and, and be there for me, it's with her whole heart, you know, it's with her whole heart and her whole soul and she's got my back and I know it and it's, it's crystal clear. And that's, it's, it's a phenomenal place for us to be.
1: Mm. Yeah. She, she really is a remarkable woman. And I, I love that you'd shared about the, you know, how much focus she puts on ensuring that, you know, as they'd say, you put, you, you've got to put your own oxygen mask on before you can help anyone else. And You are right in that a lot of couples, they don't, you know, even couples who aren't necessarily struggling with, with, you know, a really severe form of mental illness, just in general, like a a lot of us these days don't think about how we can be actively nourishing our our mental health and how we can be really implementing solid self-care regularly. Um, I mean, I was talking about this in a at an event earlier this year in that a lot of people think of self-care as, oh, you know, I might give myself a bubble bath or I might, um, you know, buy, buy something nice for myself. But they don't think about that long-term self-care, you know, the things that are really going to nourish you and keep you going, avoiding burnout, avoiding breakdowns, all those things for a long period of time. You know, you can't just get to a point where you're in a really bad state and then like slap some band-aid self-care over it. You've got to be on that all the time. So I'm glad to hear that Mar- um, Margaret is, yeah, very, I mean, it's very clear in your journey and um, how strong, you know, your recovery has been. It's It's very clear that you've got those strong people around you as well. So thank you for sharing that. Um, Now, I'd love to get into talking a bit about your book and your author journey because that's what we're here to talk about today. So a lot of people know you for your documentary that you mentioned earlier, Suicide, the the Ripple Effect, but I can't remember how many years it was before that, sorry, but I do know that before that you released a book called Cracked, Not Broken. And I was wondering if you could just start by sharing a little bit about that book and how that came to be. I mean, had you always dreamed of writing a book? Or was this something that just evolved out of your journey?
0: So uh, I, wrote, I wrote Crack Not Broken in 2013. Suicide, the Ripple Effect came out in 2018. So 2013, I wrote Crack Not Broken, Surviving and Thriving After a Suicide Attempt. And I, I had no intention of writing a book. Uh, but everywhere I went to speak, people would say to me, when is your book coming out? And so I realized after the thousandth person that told me that, literally, I better write one uh, and, and share this whole journey. They didn't want just that hour; they wanted, you know, because you get on stage and you talk for sixty minutes or forty-five minutes or fifty minutes, and then you leave, you know. And they wanted a deeper look, each of the people that brought brought it up to me, a deeper look into what the story was, where did I come from, you know, uh, what led me to the Golden Gate Bridge in the first place. How did I find, live, and how do I stay in recovery? So that was kind of how, based off these conversations I was having with people, that was what they were looking for. And I thought, okay, I can make a book about this, and it could really help some people, you know? And so, uh, and, and, and the reality was, in the year 2000, when I jumped, in the first psych ward I was in, um, I started writing down these, these wellness tips to stay stabilized. I formalized them in 2004 in, a, in my third psych ward stay, and, and I put them in the book in 2013 in its nascent stage, The Art of Living Mentally Well, which would then become The Art of Wellness. Um, and so uh, I, for Crack Not Broken, I shared what I believed to be at the time my whole story. And I remember uh, I was writing the book at this place called Prima Cosa Cafe in San Francisco, which was my favorite coffee shop. It was right under where Margaret worked every day because she was, she was in venture capital at the time. And this was before she left venture capital to come work with me and we built a business together. Um, but I would, I was literally, I was literally from, from eight in the morning to sometimes six or seven or eight at night writing this book. Uh, I would take breaks. I would take coffee breaks. I would take meetings with people I wanted to talk to. I'd, I'd make connections with my network and and build that up at the same time. But I was often just sitting there writing into my computer. Uh, and, you know, it was interesting to see the the reaction of the, of the cafe hosts, you know, the people that, that were working there. Because they're like, oh, yeah, he's writing a book. Sure. You know, yeah, okay, buddy. You know, and I kept saying, when it's done, I'm going to hand it to you, you know. And sure enough, when the book came out, I, I hadn't been to the cafe in some time. We had moved to a different different area, and I I walked right in there and I went to the owner and I and I, sa- I said, "Here's a signed copy of my book," and he was like, "Oh, you really did write a book?" I said, "Yeah," like, I tried to tell you, but you weren't you weren't here um but yeah that was oh book. yeah
1: sure buddy sure you are
0: hey, sure. that's how it. isn't it funny how family and friends are like that when you're like you're gonna write a book like okay pal because they just can't see it in their eyes and they're, they're not seeing it from your perspective but even my family and friends like okay he's writing a book sure we'll, we'll, we'll see it when it comes out they, they didn't believe.
1: I'm just humoring you
0: yeah they, you know yeah Humoring and humbling
1: me. Uh, I think that's fair enough too, because yeah, like in my role as a book coach, you know, I hear from people all the time that say, "I'm writing a book and it's going to be the <laughs> best book out there," and you know, everybody has that belief. Yeah. Well, that's actually, a- I wish everybody had that confidence in their story, <laughs> but a lot of people will big talk about how they're writing this book or their book's going to be amazing, but they never actually finish it. Like it's such a small percentage of of writers who actually finished the book and then go on to publish it. So I think I love that you went and handed that.
0: <laughs> I did. I handed it to the the cafe owner and and, uh, and and he did me the honor of actually reading the book and then calling me about it, which was nice. Um, and my, my family read the book and my friends read the book and it was, it was great. There were some some disagreements on the content, but otherwise it was pretty great.
1: Yeah, well, I would love to ask you about that reaction from family because you said, you know, there was some disagreement. I I know that when a lot of people start writing their books, especially if they're dealing with trauma and things like that, one of the things that can hold them back is that fear about what are my family going to say or who who is this going to upset? Is this going to distress my family or other people further? Did you have those feelings while writing and did you share? much of the book with your loved ones while you were writing or did you just wait till the end?
0: I waited till the end because I wanted it to come from me. I know that perception is reality. I recognize it, it, in, in scientific terms, every human being perceives every situation just slightly differently or greatly differently. So that, that, that's a fact. We have to look at that. But when I wrote my book, I wanted it to come from my heart, from my gut, and I wanted it to come from my memory. Um, and, 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 you know, I've had some issues with memory in 2011, uh, two years prior to writing the book, I had 26 treatments of electroconvulsive therapy that affected my short-term memory for quite intensely for some time. Um, it still has a remnant effects that I deal with, uh, today with with my memory. Um, but I did, I did get some like, you know, general information from them. I called my mom. I called my dad. I asked them about certain stories. Um, I wanted to get their opinion, not so much their writing. So I did. I did at least do that. Um, and, and 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 I think that I, I remember there was one specific instance in the book where I was at uh, at, a, at, a, at a at a cafe, and I'm writing what what I called in the cafe my chronic uh, manic thoughts. Um, And clearly I I was suicidal that day and I was in a terrible place and I'm writing all these thoughts in this journal my dad had given me that morning, it was his old journal. And that morning he had said to me, Kevin, you know, write down your thoughts so you can get them out of your head because you you don't seem too well. I'm really worried about you today, but I've got to go to work and I need you to make sure you're safe. Can you just go to the cafe um, next to the clinic in case you get in trouble, go into the clinic, you know, the mental health clinic. And Uh, It was and Ocean Cafe, and I called two of my friends, Joe Herlisi and John Davies. And in the book, I reversed the order in which they came to the cafe. It's a small mistake, but I reversed who got there first, and I reversed exactly what each of them said to me that day. So I got the wrong name, and I got the wrong words, right? And they reminded me of that. They were like, no, this is what actually happened. I came here first, and this is what I said, and that's actually what John said. And he was there a you know, second, so um, those kinds of little things were kind were the things that people were, you know, funny about. You know,
1: yeah, okay, and that that is a good point about showing. Um, you know, with I often talk with my clients about that sort of unreliable memory factor that you know we we remember our stories in a, a very specific way, and sometimes that's because of sometimes we might remember something a bit differently or in a way that didn't necessarily happen and that can just be the effects of memory over time or sometimes it's because of trauma or other things going on or like you um explained with uh what you went through with medical treatment um and that can be where it's really helpful to be able to ask loved ones uh, or family members especially to read sections and tell us what they think um But it can also, it's also a bit of a balance. And I often will tell my clients that, you know, it really comes down to the relationship that you have with your family. Because if you do have a close relationship and you're able to ask these questions as you're maybe working your way through the final draft, that's great. But if you don't have a a close relationship with your family, or they're quite toxic, or you know that they're not going to be supportive in this and only discourage you from going forward then, you know, it's it's better to not ask them for their advice on your book. Um, however, that can, of course, lead to those moments where it can be difficult to remember things exactly as they happen. But the thing is, when people read our stories, obviously the, the thing they care most about is the emotion that you're able to convey and how you're able to bring them into the story and make them feel like you're speaking to them. So even though there might be little mistakes in the book or things that, you know, could have weren't precisely accurate, um, you know, it's important to remember that as as long as the emotional truth of the moment is correct and that, you know, you're still telling basically the core truth of what your journey is, that's the main thing. You know, there will be, always be little mistakes or things that we get round the wrong way. But I'm glad to hear that your family was, you know, pretty supportive through this and that you've had a lot of support I actually saw on, I think it was Amazon, I was reading through some of the reviews that people left for Cracked Not Broken. And it was, it was just beautiful to see how many people's lives had been changed from you writing this book and not even necessarily people who were reading it for themselves because, you know, because they had been through the same things, but reading it for their loved ones you know i remember reading a comment from someone that said um i think maybe she she had either lost her son or her son had gone through was going through something very similar to you and it was helping her to understand um, more from his perspective and understanding how to support people who are going through this and i think that's what's so powerful about writing in particular and books in particular is that we are able to really create these beautiful and powerful bonds through the power of words in a way that we're not often able to convey in other ways you know you could stand up and speak in front of an audience and you know there's always going to be there like there's always going to be people there who will I was writing about this recently you know someone could listen to a speech and they might nitpick things about you know the person's appearance or the sound of their voice and that can create biases where they're not as open to listening but when somebody reads a book most of the time most of that bias has been removed you know as long as the book is well written of course because it's just the person alone with the words on this page so they really they really sink in and absorb uh you know all of all of those messages and feelings and emotions that the author is is sharing um so i think that's you know to me, in particular, that's why I think books are so powerful. and And yours has certainly created you know an amazing impact around the world. So I'm really glad that you went ahead and wrote that book and didn't just become another writing statistic. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing I did want to ask you was what was one of the biggest challenges aside from memory? Um, I was wondering what one of the biggest challenges was with writing, but particularly when you are writing so vulnerably, about really deep trauma that you'd been through was there was there anything around that that was very difficult for you?
0: There were times during the writing process where I broke down and cried, and I, I wrote the I wrote most of the book at Primacosa Cafe, and then I would write the end of the book, uh, well, toward the end of the book, at the mental health uh, mental health board of San Francisco that I was, on, I was sitting on at the time, um, at their offices uh downtown uh and then i would finish the book book and this was really this is probably the toughest challenge i had i was finishing the book the the last two chapters while in a psych ward wow so in, that, in that psych ward and not nobody knows this story i never tell the story um i couldn't write my hands would shake so violently i couldn't write so i dictated the book to a nurse who was willing during the art therapy sessions to help me, so everyone else, everyone else is doing their art therapy project next to me, paintings, drawings, sketches, whatever. I'm sitting in the corner with the nurse, dictating my book, my, the last two chapters of my book, and because I I couldn't write my hand, my, my hand the, the medications, the 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 trauma, the the anxiety, I just couldn't, my hand couldn't keep a pen to paper, um, certainly couldn't type. Um, and we weren't allowed digital devices in the in the hospital anyway. So yeah, so so she wrote it for me, and uh, and it was, you know, I, I feel bad because I I don't even remember her name.
1: I was going to ask you if you'd had any contact with her since no, then, but I, I, yeah.
0: yeah, it was. Um, I I I, re- I wish I was in a place back then to stay in contact, but I wasn't. You know, and uh, I'm just very grateful for whoever that was to that that did me that that honor you know, because if without without her, the book wouldn't be finished.
1: And that in itself is another really beautiful example of just how powerful those random acts of kindness can be. I mean, I know that it was, you know, she was there as part of her job and she was helping as part of her job, but still that level she of have to do that. care
0: knows. and
1: kindness. Yeah. yeah. And I'm glad that you brought up about um, how you use dictation to finish it because that's another thing. Um, uh, technique that I will often, um, uh, that's another technique that I'll often suggest to people who really struggle with writing, whether it's because of um, mental health um, challenges that they're currently experiencing or whatever it might be, or maybe they, you know, have a disability where they're not really able to use their hands that much. Um, Dictation can be a really great way to you know, get your book done. I often use it for a lot of, um, stuff, especially if I'm out on the road and I have thoughts come to me for a certain chapter of my book. I'll just open the notepad on my phone and just dictate it and, um, you know, scrub and polish it up later. So, um, I'm able, I'm glad that you're able to get it done that way because that is a really fantastic tool. And that's so beautiful that that nurse was able to help you get such an important message out. Um, One of the other questions I wanted to ask you was uh, what one of the most beautiful messages is that you've received since writing this book and putting it out there? I know there's probably thousands, but I wonder if there's like just one or two or even like a a certain theme that's really shone through from a lot of messages that really is really, really precious to you?
0: I think the theme that shines through the most is the the younger individuals who say, reading this saved my life. You, you can't put a price on that. That, I don't claim to save lives. I don't own that. I'm a messenger. I'm a conduit. I give a message. People go home. They do the work. They save and change their own lives. But hearing people, that many people, say that so often, based off of one piece of literature that I wrote, it's, it's a magical feeling every time I read something like that. And they say it in different ways. They say it in beautiful and kind ways, but it, it never ceases to imprint on my heart and make me feel um, like I'm walking on air, you know?
1: Yeah, it, it's beautiful. And I understand that, you know, because I I have had some similar messages and it is really beautiful when you can see that your story is is helping others and that your book or well, your books have helped to give somebody else hope to, you know, take that action to live a better life. And, and I love that your book's been able to do that. And, of course, you know, you've, that's, you've done so much since that time as well because you've had Suicide the Ripple Effect come out, which is your documentary. Um, and I think you had another, are you working on another documentary now or was there another one that also came out after that?
0: Working on another documentary now. I was in I was in a couple of documentaries, uh, The Bridge. Uh, I was in a documentary in the BBC uh, for suicide prevention. I'm gonna be in a documentary called River Dogs about sea lions uh, and how they how they're being mistreated in Oregon. Uh, yeah, so a lot, lot of film work there. But I'm working on a new documentary called The Net. Uh, it's a it's a it's a look into the 85 year journey. Into raising a net at the Golden Gate Bridge, the eight fights that failed since 1937 when the bridge opened, and the current fight that succeeded—that we worked so hard on to change policy—and the idea is if we can change policy here; we can do it anywhere. They're putting the net up on the bridge right now. We will be following that story and that journey, and talking to people who both fought for it and against it um, for so long. And it's—it's going to be a beautifully powerful, very cinematic. Uh, and very historic documentary. Um,
1: I can't wait for that one. I mean, it just blows my mind that there would be, and for anyone who's listening, that doesn't quite understand what you're speaking about. You're speaking about the nets that they've put up on the bridge to help save other people who might find themselves in the same situation that you did all those years ago where you know they're wanting to take their life. And it just blows my mind that anybody would be against that. Um, is it, is it true that the main issue people have is about the view and losing the views from the Golden Gate Bridge? Yeah. Is that really what it is?
0: Aesthetics.
1: Aesthetics, yeah. Aesthetics.
0: Don't ruin the beauty of the bridge. What are the, yeah. is the beauty of a bridge compared to one human life? Mm-hmm. Just one, let alone 3,000, which have died at the Golden Gate Bridge, no matter who tells you otherwise. Or 4,000 or higher for all the bodies washed away to sea or eaten by fish to the bone that they never find. If they only see, if they only only find a piece of the body, they don't count it as a person who died off the Golden Gate Bridge. If they don't find, um, if they find, because what happens, the the whole sad truth about the Golden Gate Bridge is that people are eaten by fish to the bone, then they don't get counted. People who leave their backpacks with their notes on the backpack uh, on the bridge or their notes in their car, but they don't find the body, they don't count that, that person that died. Uh, if they don't find the whole body, they don't count you. Uh, so they've miscounted for decades um, for the entire duration of the bridge being open. Um And people say the bridge director will tell you that 1,800 people have left off the Golden Gate Bridge and died. But that's a farce. It's a farce. The number is more like 2,000, 3,000 or higher. You know, we have fought. I- I've been in the fight for 20 years to raise it at the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, there are people that have been in the fight for 30 years. There are people that fought for the last 30 plus years and then they passed away and they're not, they not—they don't even get to see what's happening today. But the BRIDnet is being put in place right now. And as of 2023, when it is done, not one more beautiful soul will ever again die off the Golden Gate Bridge and it will become the largest, most powerful, brightest and most beautiful beacon for suicide prevention, reduction of access to lethal means right around the world.
1: Absolutely, I'm, I'm so glad that this is finally happening. Like I said, it just blows my mind that it's it's taken this long. And it's really, really unfortunate and sad that so many who were in that initial fight so many decades ago that, you know, some of those people aren't here to see this happening, but I'm really glad that it is happening. And thank you for being one of those voices who's pushed to have this here, because there will be so many thankful families who will never have to go through um, the heartache that your dad went through thinking that he'd lost you in that moment and also i it's sort of to come back to the book you know it's amazing to see everything that's come to fruition and all the opportunities that you've had to raise more and more awareness since writing that book you know back in 2013 i think you said it was and then you know you've had the documentary you've been in other documentaries you've been part of these amazing movements for change and i always try to encourage people who have a, a a strong passion who really have that driving force within them that's telling them to write this book um, that's going to create change. You've got to think about the future. Writing a book is very daunting. There's a lot that you have to do and it takes time and it can't, you know, it shouldn't be rushed, especially for for memoir or nonfiction.
0: That's one of my pieces of advice. Do it right or don't do it at all. Yeah. My mom used to tell me that all the time. Do it right or don't do it at all. You know, the reality, I've got a bunch of book projects in the works as well. Really excited about those. Um, but I'm really, I'm putting focus on different book projects. But when I am focused on one of them, I'm all in. Yep. All in, dive deep, focus on that. And it's, it's. I'm really excited for what's to come.
1: Me too, me too. And with that too, like I love what you said about do it right or don't do it at all. Because like I was saying, if you're really going to go all in and do this, you do need to do it the right way. Don't rush it. But it's important to look beyond your fears to what you want to achieve in the future. I mean, obviously, I'm sure that there were many times that I'm I'm sure, you know, a decade or two decades ago, there's no way that you could have imagined that you would be doing a lot of the things that you're doing today. Um, But I think if anyone can get anything from your story today, it's that. If you really have that heart calling to use your story to create change and create impact, um, it's important to look beyond those fears and think about what you actually want to achieve and focus on that impact that you want to create because, as you've shared, you know, there's a number of amazing uh, documentaries you've been in and there's all these incredible opportunities that have come since that day. And a lot of that for, for a lot of us comes back to that brave decision to Put our story to paper and tell our story in full. And um, yeah, I want to thank you for doing that because your book's making incredible impact around the world. And if I can just ask you one question before we wrap up, um, you've already shared just briefly on this, but what's one other tip that you could maybe give for an aspiring author who is maybe somebody like yourself who's wanting to write about their mental health journey? What's one tip that you you could give them to help them on that journey?
0: So I learned something in the latter half of writing the book during my, the time I wrote it in the, in the mental health board offices. I was having a hard time concentrating. I was having a hard time with my mental health. So I wrote for 10 minutes a day. If at the end of the 10 minute timer, I could write more, I would. But if my mind was fractured, I wouldn't. Those 10 minutes added up over time. And then I wrote the book in the psych ward and the book was finished. So don't beat yourself up about the length of time at which you have to write this book. You don't have to write eight hours a day. Take your time, do it right, or don't do it at all.
1: Couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for that, Kevin. Um, Before we wrap up, can you share where people can learn more about um, yourself, your book, and the work that you're doing?
0: Absolutely. So a couple things. You You can check out our Hindsights podcast. H-I-N-E-S, I-G-H-T-S, I G H T S seventy six episodes so far, um, really great stuff. Uh, there's three episodes a week. There's an Ask Kev where people from all around the world ask me questions about mental health and I answer them. There's a mental health hack after that, a little, a little small thing you can do to benefit your brain health today. Uh, and then there's a, a interview with guests after that on Saturdays. Um, and then uh, you can go to at Kevin Hines Story on all social medias uh, to follow me or to be a part of the journey. You can go to youtube.com slash Kevin Hines for 540 videos that we created, that we designed to better your brain health. Go check them out today and and know that we are coming out with, I'm coming out with a children's book. I'm coming out with a sequel, the crack, not broken. Um, I, I, I self published a book with a friend, uh, called the third rail in my mania. I became with, uh, by, by, uh, jesse cohen and myself uh jesse cohen uh was a phenomenal human being out of florida who tragically lost his life to suicide we were writing his memoir together and he died before the memoir came out uh, by suicide but but the book is powerful it's moving it's meaningful and it is also changing lives um and it's 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 a it's a powerhouse of a book he lived a wild life but I'll, i'll leave it at that Uh, and just, just know that whatever you're working on, whatever you're trying to accomplish, you can achieve it if you so desire and believe you can.
1: Hey there, Changemaker. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you're feeling ready to take the next step in your author journey. As always, I'd love for you to hit the subscribe notification so that you can be the first to know when new episodes drop. And of course, if you're feeling ready to take the next step with your own writing and publishing journey, and you're looking for one-on-one support, I would love for you to reach out to me at jazzrawlinson.com bookcoaching. Until next time, keep writing, keep creating impact. And remember, there is always someone out there waiting for a story just like yours.